Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. In these times of alternative facts and fake news, scientists of all stripes are stepping out of their labs and off the pages of their specialist journals to communicate their ideas and their methodologies to a broader public. But some of these scientists are going even further, communicating science by getting ordinary folks like you and me to actually do science. Hello, I'm John Langer, and this is Communication Mixdown. And in this edition of the show, we'll be hearing from two science communication advocates. Both of them want to get science into the public realm, but they also see the connection between communicating science and getting lots of people actually doing it, and by doing it, contributing to the body of scientific knowledge. Mike Flatley is the CEO of the Royal Society of Victoria. In this role, he's been intimately involved in facilitating communication links between science and community and cultural development. He spoke to Communication Mixdown's presenter, Stefan Schutt, by phone earlier this week. Welcome, Mike, to Communication Mixdown. Now, you're, Thanks, the, <laughs> you're the head of the Royal Society of Victoria, so just as I a start, could you briefly tell us about the Royal Society, just for a bit of background? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, the Royal Society is one of the oldest, uh, it's called a learned society. Um, it's, uh, it's a relic of the 19th century to a large extent, but uh, it, uh, it started out as one of the first research institutions in Australia. Uh, and with the, uh, the growth of the research sector in Australia, particularly after the First World, well, sorry, the Second World War, uh, the society has come to more focus on the public appreciation for and understanding of science. So it's, uh, it's more about uh, facing the public and, uh, and, getting, uh, and getting non-scientists engaged with science and scientists. Fantastic. Now, would it be right to say that one of the functions of the Royal Society is to communicate to a broader public what people might see as very technical or esoteric scientific ideas? Have you got a recent example or two, for instance, of how you might be doing this? Oh, yeah. Look, uh, to a large extent, it's about understanding that science is a human activity. Uh, and as a human activity, it's also a cultural activity. Any human activity is cultural, really, when it comes down to it. Uh, so understanding that um, all people uh, have a scientific brain, uh, whether you've studied science or are a scientist yourself, uh, most people can actually understand and follow science as long as it, the, uh, the language that's used to communicate scientific ideas is accessible. Uh, so largely what we do is we brief our scientists, uh, those who come to talk to us about the, the remarkable work they're doing, because uh, you know, 
Victoria, let alone Melbourne, is a, is a, uh, is a real powerhouse for science globally, not just in Australia. Uh, so we have some of the most remarkable scientists right here on our doorstep to talk about some of the work that they're doing. It's very exciting, and it becomes particularly exciting if those scientists put the effort into uh, to take the uh, the professional uh, language or the jargon, if you like, um, out of their presentation. They're not talking to other scientists within their field. They're talking to either scientists from other fields or people who aren't scientists at all, like myself. Um, if they can break it down into language that uh, really I'm a bit of a litmus test, if I can understand it, uh, then um, and uh, and I can follow it, then I, I genuinely feel the excitement of the discovery that's being made, and so does the rest of our audience. Fantastic. And, and do you have any uh, examples of projects that you've been running lately at all in this area? Yeah, look, uh, we've been running our own lecture program here at the Society for, well, forever, really, since we started back in 1854. So that's uh, that's when we would have re a regular talks program. Uh, it was a, like a salon program in the 19th century, and it's still a little bit like that today. You have a lecture, and uh, and, uh, yeah, and, you, and you put a lot of cultural uh, elements around that. You've got dinner and a show sort of approach to things. Uh, so that's been a very long-standing feature of life at the Society. Uh, however, uh, in recent years, we've also uh, focused and put a lot of effort into our outreach program as well. So understanding that uh, coming to attend a science lecture isn't exactly everybody's idea of what they'd like to do on a Thursday or Friday night. Um, you have to find other ways to engage people where they are and understanding that uh, people of different age groups want something different from uh, their social or cultural uh, time together. Uh, whether it's in schools or after school or at university, outside of classes or whether it's at work or outside of work. Uh, there are lots of different settings in which you, um, you can design a science engagement program to reach different people uh, and a big part of that work means uh, finding what's relevant to those people and whether it's uh, concerning their future career direction, uh, whether it's simply appealing to their curiosity um, or whether it's um, understanding what the problems facing a particular community might be and how science and scientists can offer uh, some input to those problems. Mm. And uh, I remember being at the uh, Aboriginal astronomy event that was happening in Epping uh, earlier this year that that um, was incredibly well attended. Um, mm. uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about why that might be and what the interest is amongst lay people yeah. in some of these things? Yes, exactly. Well, this, this is what uh, I was getting to before about um, science being a cultural activity. Um, if you can understand that, you know, the, uh, this, I hope I'm not talking out of school here, but uh, there's, a, there's a saying that, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the largest erogenous zone on a human being is the brain. Um, so uh, when, you're, uh, when you're engaging the mind and you've sort of got all of these ideas just firing because of the... Um, the, the, uh, the, ter the terrific stuff that somebody who spends all their day thinking and finding new knowledge out managed to, to distill that into a single hour of a presentation for your benefit. Uh, your brain just sort of lights up and it's a very pleasurable experience. Um, when we had the Aboriginal astronomy event, when we had so many people interested in that, and that was uh, Dr. Dwayne Hammaker's presentation. And Dwayne is working at the, uh, the Monash um, Indigenous Studies Centre. Uh, and he's uh, from an American background. People were wondering if they're going to be um, hearing from an Indigenous Australian. And sadly, no, Dwayne isn't uh, isn't Aboriginal, um, much to his own regret. But uh, he uh, works with um, a lot of Australian Aboriginal, uh, in particular uh, uh, undergraduate students uh, in astronomy. And of course, <laughs> what you find with non-scientists is the distinction between astronomy and astrology can be fairly ambiguous. Uh, so we, we have a lot of people 
um, responding to that one online who were, I think, really looking for some sense of mysticism or mystery about what was being presented. And certainly there is a lot of mystery in science, but of course it's not mystical. Um, but that said, um, there, that's innate curiosity about something, um, something beyond the everyday uh, did attract a lot of people to that particular subject matter. Uh, and understanding a different knowledge system, which is really what we got to with that. It wasn't mysticism, but it was a different knowledge system, uh, understanding that um, Aboriginal Australians do have science within, uh, within their traditional culture. In fact, you know, as I think Dwayne pointed out, you don't get to sit around in a place for 65,000 years without understanding a great deal about that place. So, of course, there's some very deep knowledge embedded in the culture of, um, of traditional Aboriginal Australians. Uh, that um, that can be surfaced through simply understanding what the stories are, understanding how the sky reflects the, um, the stories that uh, that were encoded in the sky actually reflect a lot of the knowledge about the land in particular. So um, there's a real reflection there in what um, in what Dwayne was describing, and that comes from his um, his work working in Aboriginal communities to understand the science that's innate in those communities. Fantastic. Now, um, I've heard that the Royal Society is setting up the Victorian chapter of the Australian Citizen Science Association. Can you tell us a little bit about this and how you see this new chapter enhancing how science is communicated to a broader public? Yeah, so um, this, I guess this gets directly to the idea of communication. Science communication has been a, a discipline, if you like, for quite some time. Um, and uh, there is a, um, an organisation, a professional body, I guess you call it a community of practice called the Australian Science Communicators who have been around for a while now. Uh, and that's really looking at what is the best way of getting scientific concepts across to people who are not necessarily initiated in a scientific discipline, uh, pretty much what I've been describing already. And there's a lot of different thinking around that. When you get to citizen science, um, you really get uh, into the realm of learning through doing instead of uh, receiving wisdom from others. Uh, so it's, um, I see citizen science as probably the most compelling way for a non-scientist to understand what the scientific method is um, out of any, any other sort of given method. Uh, it is also one of the most difficult uh, realms to, I guess, administer or govern or even get started. So it's a, there's a lot of challenge around citizen science, which is very much about um, getting, uh, getting say, communities engaged in the work of a scientific researcher, whether that be in the field in, say, uh, environmental research, um, or whether it be um, online with, um, with uh, working through data sets and, uh, and either um, understanding whether the data is, uh, is accurate or not, or analysing the data, um, and, uh, and finding patterns in the data, because, of course, all humans are very good at pattern recognition. So there's, um, there's a, probably a thousand different ways that a non-scientist can get involved in a scientific project as long as that platform is being provided by a scientist and making sure that that's actually good science and not just uh, something that's been cobbled together and then held up as evidence. So the, uh, it's very important that all citizen science, where you've got a whole lot of non-scientists contributing to a scientific project, uh, that a citizen science project has enough of what we call rigour involved in it to, uh, for the science to be meaningful and to be useful to... Um, to not just to scientists, but also to governments who use the data later on down the track to um, to inform policy and decision making. That's that's great, Mike. Thank you very much for that. That's probably all we've got time for today. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. No worries. Thanks, Stephen. Good to talk to you. You too. That was Mike Flatley. He's the CEO of the Royal Society of Victoria, and he was speaking there with Stephen Schutt earlier this week.
The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org That's info at amelbournebookfair.org Or message us on our Facebook page Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018 A 3CR supporter This week on the show we're discussing science communication Jack Nunn is a researcher in the Department of Public Health at La Trobe University And he's someone who thinks communicating about science is best accomplished not by talking about it or reading about it or seeing it played out in documentaries on television, but by actually doing it. In this pre-recorded interview with Stefan Schutt, he explains his approach. Uh, Thanks a lot for coming in today, Jack. Now, you founded an organization called Science for All. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we, we've just recently founded an organisation called Science for All, and we're currently under the auspices of the Royal Society of Victoria, which which basically means they're kind of uh, sort of helping us get get started. And the idea is that we want to support everyone in the world to get involved in shaping the future of human knowledge. So that might sound sort of vague and lofty, uh, and and it is. But uh, we actually run a number of very sort of real projects, and one of those is Campfires and Science. And the basic idea of all of our projects is not to tell people what knowledge is, not to say here's the answer, but to teach people how to ask a question. So to teach people how to find the answer for themselves using tools such as the scientific method or storytelling, whatever that is, and to, to sort of reclaim the word science from the kind of idea of, you know, Here's the answer, or here are the facts, and to, to reclaim it as meaning knowledge, and that's something that everyone should be involved in sharing and creating. Fantastic. And those um, campfires and science events, can you tell us a little bit more about what they are and what they involve? Yeah. Um, well, I, I've got a background in um, sort of facilitation and, and, and training, and back in the UK I used to work with health charities to sort of bring uh, researchers and members of the public together to try and sort of work out how to involve people in research. And, and here the word involve means um, actually having a role in in shaping aspects of the research and deciding, for example, what should we research and what are our methods. Now, it, you know, back in the UK, we used to do that in dimly lit rooms with sandwich lunches and that sort of thing. I've been in Australia for about four years now and and a couple of years ago was made aware of the amazing natural heritage that Australia and in particular Victoria has to offer, but also made aware of how um, some of that's threatened and there are a lot of critically endangered species out there. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to be invited out with a, with a few people with some thermal imaging cameras who were looking for lead possums, which are a critically endangered species. There's about 1,500 left on planet Earth, all of which are in Victoria. And the habitat where they live is is currently threatened, and and one of the reasons is is human destruction. So, for example, some of the sort of two three hundred year old trees are cut down to make office paper. Um, so, you know, the question here is, could these forests be managed better, and and what could be done about it? So, I kind of found a 
a band of dedicated volunteers who were, you know, staying up late till three in the morning and driving home. And I said, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a campfire and maybe tell some people about what you're doing? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll organize a campfire. You guys bring the thermal imaging cameras and your amazing knowledge and expertise and we'll take it from there. And that was just over a year ago and we've we've run over 10 events now and we have a Facebook group with sort of nearly a thousand people and lots of followers online and we, we um, just get around the campfire, share knowledge and, and, you know, we invite experts to speak. But a crucial part of them is we always try and involve people in, in doing something, you know, in actually going out and learning something for themselves or or trying to, to, you know, ask their own questions. So, yeah. I guess um, since we're a program about communication, if you had to think of the connection between the idea of science communication and the work that you do with your citizen science projects, what sort of observations would you make about that? I was doing some uh, work on a project for the World Health Organization a couple of years ago about disaster communication, and there was a report uh, with a foreword by Arthur C. Clarke, which was actually about the tsunami in Sri Lanka where, where he lived and, and he witnessed it. And uh, he said, communication is both an art and a science. And I think that's a very profound statement because, you know, my my background, I, st- I studied English literature and music, you know, over 10 years ago. And, and I'm now doing a, a PhD in, in public health uh, um, the University of La Trobe, but that's, that's full-time. So, so all of this is in my, my spare time with, with friends, I should say. But um, the question really to talk about communication and science is, is to question everything and to teach people how to do that. And if people are communicating things to you, to ask back, you know, who are you to tell me this? And who are you to tell me what I can know? And I think those two fundamental questions if asked in the right way at the right time to the right people, are very powerful. And I think, you know, the scientific method is one way of asking that question. But I think people too often conflate and confuse the idea of science, meaning a body of knowledge, and the scientific method, meaning, you know, one of the ways we can ask a question, but it's not the only way. So when we're talking about, you know, different kinds of knowledge, I I think it's also important to reclaim the word science as well from sort of being seen as this elitist thing that sort of sits in in peer-reviewed journals of course they're wonderful things that we that we do have that that place to sort of store and peer-review knowledge but traditionally mankind hasn't shared stories and science like that and you know coming from the uk to australia and being exposed to the indigenous culture in australia and, and the aboriginal storytelling and there's there's nothing like that in the uk and so it, it's it's really profound for me from someone from a background to study the power and importance of storytelling and, and remembering arthur c Clarke's story of when the when the boxing day tsunami happened a number of indigenous people who who still spoke the language uh, sort of ancient language in sri lanka ran up into the hills and they still had a cultural memory of if the sea goes out get up into the hills and that you know, most likely saved them. And I think this idea that, that storytelling actually can save people is really important. And, and, you know, especially, you know, my day job working in public health, you've got to get the words right. You've got to, commu- you know, if you want to communicate, you know, whether it's smoking or risk of alcohol or, or whatever it is, if you're not using the right words to talk to people, to tell that right story, you're not going to get the message across. And using the wrong words in the wrong way can kill people. And so I think there's a really profound importance to getting the story right. And I'm very aware coming into the to this culture 
as a sort of person from a European cultural tradition and very aware that the Royal Society of Victoria is a wonderful cultural tradition, but has the word royal in front of it and has certain sort of connotations. It's a very different environment for some people than to come around a campfire and tell a story. And I think what I'm trying to do with Campfires and Science is try and sort of unite these worlds of sort of, I don't know what you might want to call sort of modern science and and our traditional science, which which can be expressed as storytelling. And all cultures in the world have a tradition of getting around a fire and telling a story. And And I think Australia in particular is an incredibly wonderful, rich example of where that culture is, is alive and profoundly important. And I think trying to think of a way that we can bring these conceptual worlds together and unite them is really what I'm trying to do with Campfires and Science. And then collectively ask that question, so what do we do? Rather than telling people, this is what we do, it's actually collectively asking that question. But if you don't ask that question together, collectively, if you don't have everyone around that fire, metaphorically and physically, you might not even be asking the right question in the first place. So, Jack, one of the aspects of your Campfires and Science program is that you do what's called environmental DNA work. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. Uh, we've been very fortunate to get to get some funding from the state government recently to, to run a crowdfunding campaign, and they will uh, match any donations that, that we're given. Uh, so you can go to our website, scienceforall.world, to learn more about that. Uh, and specifically, some of the work we're going to be doing is using environmental DNA to look at what's out there. So just to very briefly explain uh, that. So most people will be familiar with the idea of DNA, and we've got it in all our cells. And if you shed some skin cells, your DNA will be in that. So if I was to sort of, uh, you know, if you'd uh, recently had a drink from a glass of water, you might have left some skin cells behind. And exactly the same is true with you know, any animals that are living in the environment. So what you can do now is go to a river, take a sample of water and see all the species that are living in that. What we are going to be doing is looking for at least three different critically endangered species and going for for environmental DNA samples to see what's out there. So to get some sort of baseline data on, on biodiversity. And we'll be working with a number of uh, different partner organizations and, and, um, and hopefully we'll be able to use that data to, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to use that data to inform evidence-based uh, management of the forest. But what, one of the really important things I wanted to say, because I, I know this is about communication, is, you know, yes, we, we do get around a campfire and sort of have facilitated discussions, but, but online is very important too. And in addition to sort of Facebook groups and Twitter and using Google Docs, we're also structuring the entire organization and organizing all of it using uh, a piece of software called Lumio, which is an open source, not-for-profit organization based in New Zealand, which you can make collective decision making, that kind of stuff. So we're actually going to be running the environmental DNA project uh, using that. So, so for example, I will be very quick to say I'm not an expert in this area, uh, and there are a lot of other people who are. So what I my expertise, I guess, lies in bringing people together and facilitating those conversations. So we're going to be creating online spaces to say, how should we do this research? Who else should be involved? You know, it's a completely open door. Anyone who wants to be involved, this is how you get involved online. And then that will inform and shape what we do on the ground. So bringing that kind of spirit of egalitarianism, if you like, and that kind of campfire sort of Arthurian roundtable approach to everyone is equal in communications and manifesting that in the real world online. 
So the organisation running all this is Science for All, and we're running projects like Campfires and Science. And as mentioned, uh, we're going to be launching our crowdfunding campaign this week uh, called Wild DNA. And money from that will actually help us make sure we can involve more people in doing science. You know, for example, working with, with tech hubs, and, and Stefan, I know you and I hopefully will be working together to involve sort of young people, school children, people of all ages. And, but we can't do that without uh, the support of the public. So, so please get involved at scienceforall.world. Fantastic, Jack. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you very much. That was Jack Nunn. He's a researcher in the Department of Public Health at La Trobe University and, as you heard, a strong advocate for creating opportunities for everyone to get involved in all aspects of research and science. And he was speaking there with Stefan Schutt earlier this week. Links to all the material discussed on today's show will be available on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website, along with a podcast of this show. That's all from us this week. We're Communication Mixdown, and we're here again next Thursday.